Gospel lesson. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Saint Luke. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. For, uh, or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. And then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Summer after I turned 16, my aunt invited me to come to Littleton, Colorado to spend the summer with her, with her 20-year-old boyfriend and my two younger cousins. She made dental appliances, you know, retainers. I was going out to Colorado to spend my summer making retainers. Now, the retainer part actually sounded pretty cool to me, but it was the whole Denver, Rocky Mountain, 16-year-old-on-my-own thing that was the real draw. I mean, come on, right? Even my parents thought it was a great opportunity. But getting out there was the big hurdle. My folks couldn't really afford to fly me to Denver, but for 100 bucks or so, I could take a Greyhound bus. Now, it sounded sort of in the abstract like a minor inconvenience, but I soon learned that 36 straight hours on any means of conveyance is a really long time. Like a really long time. I mean, this was before Walkmans, let alone cell phones, iPads, streaming movies, or podcasts. I had a few books, a magazine, and three-pound bag of this new treat recently made famous by Ronald Reagan, Jelly Bellies. Now, I shouldn't complain. I mean, Illinois, Iowa, and Nebraska are packed with scenic vistas. 
That is, if you take aesthetic pleasure from watching corn go by at 60 miles an hour. So much corn. It was brutal. And it wasn't like I was going out of my way to talk to anybody either on this bus. I mean, I was an introverted kid who never met a conversation with a stranger that he didn't want to have. The whole experience is one that I look back on with a particular fondness all these years later, but at the time, I was pretty sure that I had just survived an epic transcontinental tour of the nation's cornfields on a bus that reeked of Marlboro Reds body odor and regret. In fact, throughout the summer, memories of that 36-hour ride left me anxious about the ride that I would have to take to get back to Michigan. But I mean, the summer itself was pretty fun. I got to do a lot of sightseeing, went to a town that looked like it was the set of High Plains Drifter, lacking only tumbleweeds blowing down Main Street. It had the inconceivable name of Cinderella City. It was pretty great, actually. Of course, it was Biker Week, so I saw a lot of things that as a 16-year-old I'd never really actually seen before. We also went to that iconic outdoor music venue, Red Rocks. We waited in the sun all day to see 38 Special and Jefferson Starship. I sat next to a biker named Sonny, who drank from a wineskin, dressed in jeans and nothing but a leather vest. Even if he hadn't introduced himself to me, I would have known his name was Sonny because he had it tattooed on his neck which 40 years ago was either a name or something of a personal vision statement. Anyway, I, I had fun over the first couple of months, but heading into August, I started thinking about home. Missed my friends and family. I'd been pretty lonely for the first two months, which is not a bad thing for an introvert. There's plenty of time to read, watch the Cubs on WGN. And even though my aunt was great and her boyfriend was mostly nice, I, I started feeling isolated. Eventually it got so bad that I called my parents and I said I wanted to come home early. And they said, well, that's fine. We'll send you the money for a, a bus ticket. But see, that didn't give me really any solace. I mean, I was homesick, sure, but I, I, 36 hours is... I don't know if I've said this, it's, it's a long time. Such a long time. I just couldn't bear the thought of it. And as it turns out, my folks were about to fly from the west coast back through Denver on their, on their way home. And after much wrangling, probably more aptly after much whining, they said they'd see if they could get me a seat on their flight. They called me back later to say that the flight was sold out except for one first-class ticket. And I said, well, great, just buy that. <laughs> I'm an adult now. <laughs> so I understand why my dad's reaction struck me as less than enthusiastic about the plan. I mean, our, our people didn't fly first class. 
we still don't fly first class. It's just too dang expensive, especially for what amounted to a two and a half hour plane ride. Absolutely not. But the urge to get home was so strong for me by this time that I begged, please, you've got to get me on that flight. I, I have to get home. I've never felt quite so homesick and abandoned as I did after my parents told me that I'd just have to take the stupid Greyhound back. Not sure, uh, st I'm still not sure why I felt so strongly about it. I mean, I can't explain why I was convinced that there was no way I could possibly do that. I mean, obviously I could have done it. I'd already done it. But now something pulled me so firmly back toward home that I couldn't wait even 36 more hours to get there. It is a tribute to my parents' love for me that they sent my aunt my dad's credit card and had her buy me a first-class ticket back to Grand Rapids, Michigan. I mean, this was before Expedia. Heck, this was almost before credit cards. And I said, my parents, but I knew my mom would do it in a heartbeat. But my dad had to face down his sort of inner Ebenezer Scrooge to come to this decision. Looking back on it, my, my dad never really learned how to be especially emotionally available. Because of how he was raised, he, was, he had a difficult time saying, I love you. But in retrospect, there were times like these when he fought every impulse that had made him the man he was to express his love for me by doing something that his father would never have considered doing for him. As awkwardly detached as my dad so often was, he somehow understood that the most important thing in the world for me was finding my way back home. And I will love him forever for that. Our passage this morning opens, and some people have brought up an episode torn from the contemporary Judean headlines about a group of Galileans whom Pilate, governor of Judea, had murdered. Now, this is, this is Luke's method of foreshadowing. See, Pilate condemns Galileans to die, and their blood is mingled with the sacrifices they'd come to make in much the same way that Jesus, himself a Galilean, would be condemned by Pilate, his blood mingling with Passover sacrifices. See, Jesus' questioners want to know whether Pilate's victims suffered because they were worse sinners than other Galileans. Now, so many sermons over the years take this question of God and evil as Luke's central point to this story. In other words, the question addressed by most sermons on this text is whether these people died because God was punishing them or not. Jesus brings up another contemporary Judean disaster story. Remember when that tower fell over at Siloam and killed 18 Jews? Remember that? Do y'all think that they just happened to be in the same place at the same time so God could kill them off because of their sins? I mean, how likely is that? 
That's not even a little bit, according to Jesus. But I agree with Dr. Ron Allen here that Luke is concerned less about questions of God's responsibility for human suffering than with the fact that by the time Luke writes, Jesus hasn't come back yet. See, Luke is writing close to 50 years after Jesus' death. And let's be honest, people are getting antsy. But Luke sees God's delay in bringing about the apocalypse as a mercy. That's why we have this weird linkage between catastrophe and repentance. Jesus isn't saying in this passage, if you won't repent, then don't be surprised when a tower falls on you. That's not Jesus. And that's why Luke includes this odd little parable about the barren fig tree, to which the gardener wants to give a bit more time. <clears throat> but the purpose of a fig tree is to bear figs. If it's not producing fruit, then well, then cut it down. And Jesus says, well, just, you know, give it a, give it a bit more time. Let's see what happens. You know, maybe this Charlie Brown fig tree might just surprise you. The final unveiling of God's new realm will come out of nowhere. It's going to surprise everybody. And because it's so different from what everybody's used to, it will cause chaos indiscriminately. The old world is going to give, new to a, give way to a new one. And when the old world falls, it's going to feel like a ton of bricks, especially to those people whose job it is to prop up the current world. To avoid the dislocation of a new world emerging, Jesus says, requires repentance. Now, we've talked recently about repentance, which always seems to come up in conversations about John the Baptist, right? Usually, we modern folk hold repentance in pretty low esteem. It seems a bit old-fashioned, doesn't it? Like, like, like the only way to get over something you've done is to feel really badly about it. And while repentance can include feeling bad about individual sin, it means so much more. Repentance means more than just personal remorse, for example. I mean, part of the way the Bible talks about repentance is communal. See, communities have as much as individuals to repent from, don't they? Singling out trans children for harassment, for instance, strikes me as something that we should be repenting from. Targeting poor people on food stamps as schemers and thieves seems like another thing deserving of our repentance. Doing away with state income tax to keep wealthy people from having to part with so much of their money. And then raising revenues through a heavier sales tax, which impacts poor and low wealth people more severely. That's another reason we might need to repent. But you see, the other thing that we often miss about repentance is crucial to its meaning. In the Hebrew scriptures, the word for repentance is shuv. It means return, 
and is used in the sense of returning to the source or coming home. Isn't that that lovely? Rather than picturing God as a perpetually cranky hall monitor who's always looking for ways to catch us doing something wrong, the Bible imagines God as a waiting parent whose heart's desire is to bring all God's homesick children home on a first-class ticket. And that's what's behind all this talk of repentance. Jesus isn't saying that God's holding out on unveiling this new realm until everybody feels guilty enough about the old one. Jesus is saying that the very nature of this new realm requires only that we're homesick enough to want to turn away from the place we're currently stuck in to find it. And the good news is that God's patient enough to wait for us. See, in the old barren world, the wealthy and the powerful took for granted that it was designed with them in mind and that the poor and the powerless were guilty of being too lazy or worthless to flourish. But in the new world, the poor and the powerless will teach us about the yearning for another home where the last will be first and the first will be last. In the old fruitless world, the folks who have so much to lose invest everything to keep things the way they are where a few benefit at the expense of the many. But in the new world, we produce fruit not by what we save and hoard for ourselves, but by what we give away. In the old windswept world, people like Vladimir Putin invade the homes of others for their own gain. But in the new world, refugees are the very people best situated to understand how much returning home is worth. what they have to teach us. In the old desolate world, our worth is determined by the size of our bank accounts and the colleges we can get our children into. But in the new world to which we long to return, our value is determined by God's desire to bring us home. Living in the world we do, Jesus' words sound ominous and frightening if you happen to find things pretty comfortable right now. But if you're one of the homesick being welcomed back with open arms, going home is the best news ever. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.